0: Hey, it's Steve Lehman, and welcome back to the Asymptote podcast, featuring interviews and readings from the latest issue of our online journal. Our winter 2021 issue marks the 10th anniversary of Asymptote, 10 years of publishing new and exciting works and translation from around the globe. It's a big deal that's reflected, I think, in a fantastic issue. You can read original pieces from 31 countries without even having to leave your bedroom. I know I won't be leaving mine for a while. Anyway, check it out at astrojournal.com. My guest today is the translator Anton Hur. His story, Fictional Notes Toward an Essay on Translation, was published in our Winter 2021 issue, along with a translation into Korean by Bora Chung. I really love the story, and I had a great time talking to Anton about it. You should absolutely read it when you get the chance. Anton's newest translations coming out this year include Cursed Bunny, by Bora Chung, and Love in the Big City by Young Park. He also translated The Court Dancer by Kyungsook Shin in 2018, and he was recently selected for the Queens College Translation Exchange Residency at the University of Oxford, along with Bora Chung. Stay until the end of the episode to hear writer, editor, and Chinese-to-English translator Elin Wang read her translations of five poems by Chojin in both English and Mandarin. You can read them for yourself in the winter 2021 issue of Asymptote. Okay, here's my conversation with Anton Herr. Hey Anton, thanks so much for coming. Hi, thank you for having me. So you grew up around the world. You were born in Stockholm. Uh, You lived in British Hong Kong, Ethiopia, Thailand, and Korea. Do you think that having an international childhood influenced your decision to become a translator?
1: i um I don't really think so because like kids with my background I've noticed don't really have don't really become translators. <laughs> it's kind of considered as a as a thing that you might do uh if like in college to make a bit more pocket money or you know have an extra bit of income, but it's not considered like a real real career that um what so called third culture kids um tend to pursue mostly. The big thing in my for kids of my generation, my TCKs of my generation, was to go into like international banking and or law school, and those were two things that I was just completely not interested in. Although I did go to law school, um, so basically I just kind of fell into the profession as a lot of translators and interpreters actually find themselves. Uh, they just fall into it. I, I read a study from uh Huff's uh Hankuk University of Foreign Studies where um someone did like a study of like their their students and the students who became interpreters and apparently they they were kind of like, Well, I didn't want to work for Samsung or whatever and and this was just something that I could do as and I did for my parents as a young age, so I decided to do it and that's basically what happened to me.
0: Yeah, I saw that you have a law degree. Um Was there a moment where you thought you wanted to be a lawyer or did that feel like something that you were supposed to do?
1: There was never a moment that I wanted to be a lawyer, (laughs) Um, mostly because I actually because I was in a law program that produced a lot of lawyers, actually, and a lot of my friends are lawyers, a lot of my upperclassmen are lawyers. So I knew exactly what a lawyer's life looked like. I was not taken in by Ally McBeal or, you know, those legal dramas of the time. so for me it was like I never had like this glamorous picture of law I I kind of was thinking about it recently about like what has studying law and and going to this particular school done for me and I feel like what it did was build up this like humongous sense of entitlement and egocentricity where I'm like wait I went to this law school why am I doing this why why am I allowing someone to talk to me in this way and basically that's what it did for me which um Which is interesting because I I see a lot of people who have like, for example, imposter syndrome or, um, or or who have confidence issues. And I am so like, I have the other problem. I do not have a confidence issue. I do not have imposter syndrome. If anything, I'm very fake until till make it. And it's been working out really well for me so far.
0: You mentioned in an interview with booksandbow.com that you wanted to be a novelist since you were seven, which I really liked. Um... What were some of your favorite books and authors growing up, and and who inspired you?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, so many. When I was seven, I don't even remember what I was reading when I was seven. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what I was reading when I was 17. So <laughs> uh, what inspired me? I think A.S. Byatt was very, very uh, inspirational. Uh, she's, a, she's a British writer, uh, won the Booker for Possession. She she wrote my favorite short story as well called Racine on the Tablecloth, and it's about this um, this girl who is very much a nerd and she, basically throws her entire life into her studies and then there's this one moment where during her studies she breaks, and she does very well on her A levels and gets into Cambridge and does everything she's supposed to do but because of that moment where she broke, uh, she she kind of like loses faith in in literature is she doesn't have the faith in literature that she used to have. And then there's a point where she becomes an adult and she thinks, oh, maybe I sh- maybe I shouldn't have lost that faith. Maybe I should have maybe held on to it a bit. Um, which kind of is like basically the plot of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann as well, I think, which was also a very influential book for me when I was a teenager. So I think um, I kind of like always had this this feeling ever since I was little that I really love books and I really love novels specifically and this is going to be the most important thing in my life so I'm always drawn to these stories where um these kind of literary figures they're not necessarily writers but maybe they're you know librarians or they're nerds or whatever they are they they kind of like they love literature as kids and then they kind of like put it away and then they realize oh no this was what I loved all this time and what I should be doing all this time. And so for me, I actually had a very lucrative and very fabulous and satisfying career in non-literary translation before I became a literary translator. And, and I was a simultaneous interpreter and, you know, and I guess I still am because I can still do it. But uh, I decided to go 100% literary because, no, this is, what, this is what I really want to do. This is what I really like. This is my life as opposed to the other things, which were jobs. And I enjoyed those jobs and I enjoyed my clients and I enjoyed um, working with my clients in in the work that we did. But it was never going to be like, you know, being that seven-year-old and getting a new book that, you know, I've never read and just being so happy and lost inside myself and lost inside the book. Like, it was never going to be that.
0: You've written elsewhere that you worked in other fields of translation for about nine years before moving to literary translation full-time. Did working in those other fields of translation help you with literary translation or are they totally different skill sets?
1: Wow, that's a really good question. You would think that like that kind of translation would be generalizable to literary translation. Um, I remember thinking like when I first was quote unquote learning literary translation, that it was there was kind of like nothing to learn. I already know how to translate. I already know what good literature looks like, what pleases my eye. So there really wasn't much to uh learn. What I had to learn though was how the business of publishing functioned. And that was basically ninety-nine percent of um like the education that I had to do. More like Knowing, you know, knowing publishers, knowing like what they what they like, uh, knowing what was like, you know, what kind of literary prose it's hot right now. That was like basically uh, the the education I needed to become a literary translator as opposed to what I was, which was um, things connected to legal translation because I have a law degree. I did a lot of like policy translation. So I used a lot of bureaucratic. I knew a lot of bureaucratic Korean and a lot of bureaucratic English, which came in handy when I had to write all these proposals and, you know, funding grant applications as a literary translator. And uh, the other thing that I would do a lot is interpreting. Um, not so much simultaneous because that market is very, very small, but uh, a lot of consecutive interpreting. And I had like the wildest clients. I had, you know, the Korean Ski Association. And it's just like every, every sphere of commerce you can imagine, like I have interpreted in. And that was really fun. But that was really fun in the way that I was using my body, my instrument, and um, I'm sure that training and that um, that kind of like client management, and that kind of of physicality of interpreting, kind of translated into my translation, and um, because when I when I translate now, uh, I I feel like it's very I guess it's very verbal like like I can hear it in my mind. I'm not a very verbal person actually, but. When I translate, I, I hear it. It's I hear it before I see it or before I feel it. So I guess um, my translation and interpreting work kind of segged into
0: literary translation in that way. In an essay for Words Without Borders, you refer to the early stages of a career in translation as the emerging literary translator valley of death because it's so hard to make a living. What motivated you to persevere through that period? Um, to get to where you are now? If I knew how long it would take, and if I knew how much effort
1: <laughs> it would take to to get here, I would not have pursued this. I have no idea. Yeah, I feel like it's just bloody-mindedness. <laughs> it's, it's such a great British... Exp- I don't really speak British English, obviously. But, <laughs> but like, it's such a great word. Like Yeah, it's like this bloody-mindedness, like this stubbornness, where at one point... Like Korean has a really good word for ogi, which... I can't quite translate into English, ironically. But it's about... It's basically, if something doesn't happen to you, then you get so, like, emotionally invested and mad that you're like, no, I'm going to do everything in my power to throw myself even more harder into this thing that is not happening to me. So I think there was a bit of that going on. Um, And also uh when i when I was writing that article uh, about the emerging literary translator valley of death i can 't believe I forgot to mention it in that article, but I did ask some translators like so like how what got you out of it and And they all had different answers, but one hundred percent of them mentioned luck like some form of luck and, and I think i was I was very lucky in that sense. I was kind of at the right place at the right time, and i 'm a very proactive person, so I just went and just like would grab books and I'd be like, you know, I would go up to authors, I would go up to Korean publishers who tend to be the rights holders in, in the structure of Korean publishing. And I'd be like, I am all this. So you need to allow me to do a sample so I can sell this book to this publisher. And like, I had a whole spiel and I had a whole like Steve Jobs presentation energy <laughs> going on. So it was like a confluence of those factors where I was actually kind of retraining to be a a web developer and I was working um in a tech company but then I won the dayson grant and then and then another book got sold and then I thought well I can translate two books during the weekend while I do my web development work and then I sold another book and I was like okay I can't translate three books while I do this day job so I quit uh that job and I never looked back and there's been another book and another book and another book and the thing is, the last book that I have to translate on my list, which is uh, The Ocean Vuong, um, uh, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, Into Korean. That's my first uh, English to Korean book. So that contract ends uh, June, end of June this year. And then after that, there's nothing. So uh, after that, um, I have no idea if I will be a literary translator after June this year. So, so far, I have I kept getting a contract that would extend kind of my foray into literary, full-time literary translation. But I'm well aware of the fact that this could end at at any moment. And then I'll go back to um, the translation that I was doing before or web development and I'll be
0: fine and I'll be happy either way. You wrote a, a great piece for this issue of Asymptote called Fictional Notes Toward an Essay on Translation. In the story, the lines between translators and authors start to blur in really interesting ways. How do you experience those blurring lines in your own work as a translator?
1: Exactly the way that I wrote in that story, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, um, that story, like, uh, there was another, there, there was a German translator on Twitter that we were kind of joking around with uh, some years ago, and she was basically translating this German author for such a long time, and for so many pages, I think, for, for a thousand pages or something, and she was translating a very big book. And she said, like, wow, at this point, I feel like I have become the writer. And I kind of joked to her. I was like, oh, like, you're going to look in the mirror today and you're going to see him in the mirror. And then and then I thought, oh, you know, that's an interesting kind of story idea that um, I mean, it's (laughs) it's been done before. It's you know, it's a very Victorian trope, actually, these doubles and how, you know, if you meet your double. Um, like, one of you has to die, and you know, that kind of whole doppelganger literature. Like, it's very, very been done before. And so, like, I tried writing that, like, you know, some, whenever that was, that was, like, two or three years ago, and I tried to make it into this sort of Victorian Gothic story, but then it was kind of, like, super ridiculous. And it was only it was only when I um, read Bora, and I translated Bora, and I was editing Bora, and Bora was in an interview, and she said, like, one of the things that she tries to do is she tries not to make her gothic story is so obviously gothic like she tries not to all the people around um the gothic event that is happening for example if there's a head floating in the toilet like they're all totally nonchalant about it they're they're total they're totally like oh that's you know okay there's a head floating in the toilet as long as it's not getting out of the toilet and laying eggs somewhere then it's fine like that that kind of like nonchalant attitude so i thought yeah like why don't i just write the story in this different style so so, and, and why don't I make the author Bora? Because she's the one who kind of it makes sense for the story. And um, I thought, well, well, I should get her permission because she's so prominent in it. And I don't want her to be like reading a story and she pops out and like, what? So uh, I sent it to her and then she read it and then she sent it back with the Korean translation for it because she translated it into Korean. And that was such a great moment.
0: So you wrote this piece in English originally, and it was translated uh, into Korean by Bora Chung. Bora Chung um, is a Korean author whose work you have translated from Korean into English. And she has a short story collection coming out in English this year called Cursed Bunny that you translated. What's it like to see your own work translated into Korean by an author whose work you have translated into English? Is that rare? Um, it felt like I was
1: looking in the bathroom mirror and I saw her. (laughs) It felt... It was very weird. Because she did it because she wanted the story to be full circle. That was the expression that she used in the email. She's like, oh, I thought, you know, the story would come full circle if I translated your story into Korean. And I was like, A, that's brilliant. B, wow, this is very disturbing. (laughs) So it is something that does happen on occasion. But yeah, it does feel it felt so strange because reading myself in Korean, I noticed that Bora had used different um, strategies uh, than when I was writing, for example. Bora had kind of like created, inserted quotation marks and inserted, you know, these helpful markers of dialogue. And it was looking, seeing those um, markers was very reassuring to me because it kind of like distanced me from the translation. It kind of like made them like those tiny, like things that had to do with punctuation that kind of made it more of Bora's translation. I mean of course it's Bora's translation. Once it's a translation, it's of course it's Bora's work. And Bora is always telling me like, oh no, like translations of my work is always your work. It's it's your work and you know, I I'm I'm not gonna touch it or comment on it or uh, I, I'm only going to appreciate it. And that's basically how I felt as well. So it was it was really um That was the funny thing, the punctuation. And I didn't know that I would feel that way. So at first it was very disturbing, but then it was kind of cool because then I was like, oh, this is another Bora Chung short story that I forgot to translate for the collection.
0: That feeling you described where you look in the bathroom mirror and and see Bora, um, that strikes me as, as kind of beautiful, like getting so deep into someone else's language and mind that you start to wonder if you're them. And I'm interested that you use the word disturbing at first, um, because I was wondering if it was unsettling a little bit uh, to be that intimate in someone else's head. For the most part, it's not unsettling or disturbing. For the most part,
1: I always feel like my authors are sitting across from me at the desk or sitting next to me at my computer and just telling me a story. So it's, so it's really funny because when I then meet my authors in person, I always feel like we spent hours and hours and hours and days and days and days together. And I'm like, hello, Kyung Suk-shin, I love you. And Kyung Suk-shin is like, oh, okay, um, calm down. <laughs> no, I mean, Kyung Suk-shin does not say that. She's very, very nice to me. But, but I could, it's kind of, so there's kind of like that imbalance um, where I feel like I know my authors very well, but my authors... kind of like wow this guy really like um this guy really is into my work and i'm sure i'm i think it's more disturbing for them than it is for me um but it would only get disturbing for me if i was you know on a deadline and i had just been like translating for hours and hours and hours and that's when i kind of felt like is this person in my brain am i in their brain like i can't tell if this constant like talking in my head this voice that i hear and i hear my translations first like i said i don't know if if like it's me talking or if it's my author somehow talking through my head i don't like i don't consciously translate it comes through me it comes from a place in my subconscious that i cannot consciously access and i just have to my job is to just be very still and very calm and silence all my other thoughts so that I can listen to the voice that is coming uh, from within me somewhere.
0: You write about coming across Bohr's writing at a book fair in Seoul. What jumped out at you about her work when you read it for the first time? Oh, it was the language. Uh, I was, I was determined
1: to translate a science fiction work or a speculative fiction work, whatever the difference between the two is. Um, and uh, I, ha- I was like looking through different works And I would pick one up And I'd be like, Oh this, this one is The story looks interesting But oh god, the writing is not my cup of tea But it was really when I picked up Boras And I read one sentence And I was like, wow, this, this author can write Because the way she writes Her sentences are just full of irony And she would write about something terrifying But in a really funny way Or about something really funny in a really terrifying way and you, and you could kind of like read it in both ways. And I'd be like, wow, this, this is a really, really good writer. And it's very evident, like you have to read very little of Bora Chung to know that she stands out from the rest. And I was just very, very eager and excited to translate her from like one sentence. And I've never had that from from um any other writer, except maybe Kyung Seok shun
0: You manage a Korean literary translation group called Smoking Tigers. Uh, that focuses on queer korean literature korean women in translation and sci-fi why translate as a collective instead of on your own
1: the collective has been very very useful in for example you know identifying trends or getting someone to read your manuscript your sample or to practice your pitch on and also like what markets to avoid what pitfalls to avoid like what does a successful DAISON grant application look like? It's not like you can just go up to any translator and ask for their successful Penheim applications. But we can do that because uh, in a a group like Smoking Tigers, because we've kind of, I think we've we've won like every single grant that you can win um, as a Korean translator. And that is a lot of very useful information that... um, that we can share amongst ourselves. And it's, it's been very sustaining, just very encouraging for us. So yeah, I, I recommend, I recommend collectives. It doesn't have to be, you know, with us, you can have like 50 Korean collectives. I think that would be really great for the landscape actually. And of course we're, we're all going to help each other, but uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm very pro-collective.
0: You have five new translations coming out in 2021 and 2022. Cursed Bunny by Bora Chung, uh, which we talked about earlier, is just one of them. Love in the Big City by Sang Young Park is another. Can you talk a bit more about some of these new translations and what excites you about them? I guess uh, I'm I'm just really excited that
1: my career is kind of happening now. (laughs) So because after two years of not having anything out and just like working, 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 it's just nice to have like to show people that I have books coming out. And I'm I'm very excited uh, about the books, uh, especially Ssangyong Park's um, Love in the Big City and Bora Chung's Curse Bunny, because I feel like uh, the publishers are just doing such a great job, just, you know, promoting them and, like, getting ready to, like, put them out into the world. And the Bora Chung, I mean, I won a residency at the National Center for Writing with Bora Chang and I won the Penheim with Bora Chang. So like the response to Cursed Bunny just has been just so, just so great. And uh, so much has come from it that um, I'm very excited to see what it kind of like brings to us next.
0: Well, um, congratulations. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. And now, here's Elin Wong with a short introduction to the revolutionary Chinese poet Chou Jin, followed by a poetry reading in both Mandarin and English. You can read these poems and many other great works in translation in the winter 2021 issue of Asymptote at asymptotejournal.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to Asymptote for publishing my translations of five of Chou Jing's poems. Cho Jing was a Chinese writer, revolutionary, and feminist who lived from 1875 to 1907. She is very well known and widely acknowledged as a revolutionary and as a pioneer in China's early feminist movement. But as far as I know, there is still no book-length translation of her work in English, and most of the existing translations appear in academic books or anthologies. And some of those date back to the early 20th century. And so I still consider her work to be fairly underrepresented in the English publishing world. And I'm very drawn to her work because I myself identify as an intersectional feminist and as a translator. I'm really interested in bringing the work of Chinese women writers and poets to Anglophone readers. In the following poems that I translated, she writes about women's friendship, cross-dressing, her travels in Japan, her call for other women to take up arms and joining her in fighting for feminism, in fighting for revolutionary activities, and to consider the troubles of the nation as well as their own individual circumstances as women. And that's what I find really powerful about her work. I really really enjoy the second poem, Inscriptions on My Tiny Portrait in Men's Clothes, which talks about her experience, cross-dressing, and her thoughts on gender identity. Something else I want to point your attention to is the first poem, which talks about a woman who is in the home sphere, yet concerned about the troubles of the nation. A theme that continues in the rest of this election. She is also very interested in heroism as a poet and interrogating the idea of the heroic code and how women can also be heroes. I hope you enjoy my translations. Thank you so much for listening Pu Xia Yan Man Ri 不惜千金买宝刀, 雕求换酒也看好, Man A Message for a Female Friend. Cold-piercing winds invade windows. Behind drawn curtains, I saunter down a corridor. Moonlight seeps into my tall pavilion. Stirring thoughts of longing here and elsewhere. The nation's troubles stretch endless. Two women tread forth, furrow-browed. If you meet plum blossoms flowering early in the cold, please send a branch of it this way. Inscriptions on my tiny portrait in men's clothes. A solemn gaze ahead, who is this before me? A heroic spirit from a past life, resentful of residing in this body. The physical form of a diseased self is mere illusion, but the realm of the future is a real possibility. Loathing that we didn't meet sooner, let us unite. Heads raised, signing at the times, spirits emboldened. In the future, when I meet friends from bygone times, I shall declare, I have now swept the world's lofty dust away. Reflections Written during travels in Japan The sun and moon without light, sky and earth in darkness, who can uplift the sinking world of women? I pawn my jewels to sail across the open seas, parting from my children as I left the border at Jade Gate. On biting my feet to pour out a millennium's poisons, I arouse the spirit of women, hundreds of flowers of bloom. Oh, this poor handkerchief made of murfolk woven silk, half stained with blood and half soaked in tears. A reply verse in matching rhyme for Ishikun, a Japanese friend. Don't speak of how women can become heroes. Alone I rode the winds eastward for ten thousand leagues. My poetic ponderings expanded, a sail between sky and sea, dreaming of Japan's three islands, delicate jade under moonlight. Grieving the fall of browns camels, guardians of China's palace gates, a warhorse is disgraced, not one battle yet won. As my heart shatters with rage over my homeland's troubles, how can I linger, a guest abroad, savoring spring winds? To drink, don't hesitate to pay a thousand gold ingots for a treasured saber. To trade sable skin coats for mere rice wine is also bold. Hold tight to your valor, hot-blooded fellows. Your spilled blood shall transform into martyr J. torrents.
0: The Asymptote Podcast is produced by me, Steve Lehman, with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks again to Anton Hur for joining me on the show and to Elin Wong for her poetry readings. Special thanks as well to Kati Olseshipyatsky for always being my first listener. One last thing before I go, that gothic imagery Anton mentioned earlier about the head floating in the toilet, that was actually a reference to a great story written by Bora Chung that Anton translated called The Head, and you can read it on strangehorizons.com. It'll also be published in Cursed Bunny. I highly recommend it. Until next time, this was the Asymptote
2: Podcast.